trials are too important to be left up to juries. Episode 6, Legal Movies, Runaway Jury. The Four Legal English Podcast is now in session. On today's docket, we'll discuss the 2006 legal thriller, Runaway Jury. Welcome to the Four Legal English Podcast. This is the show for lawyers, law students, and other professionals from all over the world who want to improve both their legal English and legal knowledge. I am Timothy Barrett, your host. I'm a former practicing attorney in the United States. Now I teach law in Tbilisi, Georgia. If you enjoy the podcast, please give us five stars and leave a comment. Also, be sure to check out the website, fourlegalenglish.com. Four is in the number four, legalenglish.com. This is episode six of the Four Legal English Podcast. The Four Legal English Podcast is now in session. On the docket today, we'll discuss the 2003 legal thriller, Runaway Jury. This is based on a novel by John Grisham and starring John Cusack, Gene Hackman, and Dustin Hoffman. So this is the first episode in a new series for us looking at legal movies. thought we would go through and make our own list of the top legal movies. Our first one is Runaway Jury. This is a star-studded cast with John Cusack, Gene Hackman, Dustin Hoffman, Rachel Weiss, and a lot of others. might not know the names too, but you might recognize when you watch the movie. Pretty strong supporting cast. The movie is based on John Grisham's novel, The Runaway Jury. In the novel, the antagonist is the tobacco industry. In the movie, it's the firearms industry. I think the legal theory in the court case is a little weak. It might be stronger in the, the novel than it was in the movie, but it's still a pretty interesting movie. My favorite part of the movie is definitely the beginning and the jury selection, what we call voir dire. Even though a lot of the, the Gene Hackman side of it and the jury consultants, jury experts, was not based on reality, certainly in 2003. I think you can still see a lot of an actual voir dire and how a jury is selected. So I definitely want to spend some time on that. You can see at the beginning, the lawyers enter the the mostly empty courtroom and prepare. The judge arrives and the prospective jurors arrive. So they're going to pick 12 jurors and probably some alternates, but they start with a pool of 40 or 50 prospective jurors. They will go through that pool, ask questions, and whittle away the numbers until they settle on the jury. Each state and each court does voir dire a little bit different. Voir dire is the process of selecting the jury. I think this movie illustrates pretty well how often voir dire is is held. You can see at the beginning that half of the benches in the audience in the gallery in the courtroom are empty, and then the prospective jurors come in and sit in that half of the courtroom. And then the first 12 or so go into the jury box, and the lawyers start asking questions. U.S. federal court, it's usually the judge that will ask the questions. In state court, it's usually the lawyers. The judge might ask some kind of general questions at the very beginning, but then we'll leave it to the lawyers to ask the, the more detailed questions. And usually it's the, the plaintiff's attorney, or if it's a criminal case, the prosecutor will start and, and probably ask more questions than, than the other side. When I've selected juries, you are asking the whole panel at one time, 
whereas in this courtroom, they're asking one juror at a time, or at least that's the part that they show you in the movie. So in my experience, you'd ask kind of general questions, and then when jurors maybe give you an answer, then you'd ask them follow-up questions. But here, they're asking one juror at a time, going through juror one, juror number two, juror number three, etc. When selecting a jury, there are two what we call challenges. In other words, how do you get rid of a prospective juror? You challenge them. And it could be for cause, or it could be a peremptory challenge. There are unlimited cause challenges and a limited number of peremptory challenges. If it's a for-cause challenge, then you're arguing to the court that this prospective juror would not be a good fit. Maybe they have a bias, they know someone, they know something about the case. For whatever reason, they would not be a good fit for this jury. They might be a great fit on another jury, but just not for this trial. And if the court or the opposing counsel agree, then that prospective juror will be excused from this jury. The other cause is peremptory. Each side will get a certain number of peremptory challenges. For a peremptory challenge, you don't have to explain to the court why you don't like this prospective juror. You know, maybe they're just looking at you wrong, they're looking at your client wrong, you just get a bad vibe from them, and that's enough. You can use a peremptory challenge to get rid of any prospective juror that you don't want on the jury. But of course, you have a limited number, so you have to be wise about it. You don't want to waste it. In this courtroom, in the, in the movie, you can see them picking each juror one at a time, and though they accept that juror, or they, they challenge that juror, and then they move on. When I've done jury selection, we always did it kind of as a group, as the whole panel. So we would get rid of the jurors for cause, but then we would kind of sit down, look at our list, and then figure out who are the first 12 jurors uh, that are left, and which ones do we like or not like, and then kind of choose strategically which challenges we want to issue. So we would use all the peremptory challenges at once. Usually you'll have some alternate jurors. If a, a trial is very short, you expect it to be done that day or the next day. In that case, maybe you won't choose an alternate. But normally, if a trial is going to last more than one day, there's always the risk that maybe one juror doesn't show up the next day. And if that happens, then you have a mistrial because you can't move forward with 11 jurors. So it's, then you'd have to do the whole trial all over again. And it would be bad if you, that happens after one day. But imagine if you had a, a one-week or two-week trial and then all of a sudden one of the jurors disappears or is in the hospital or something like that, then you'd have to do that whole trial again. So usually they will pick a couple alternates, and depends on, on the case. If it's a controversial case or it's a very long trial, then they might pick even more alternates just, just in case, just to be ready. Then at the very end of the trial, they'll usually kick out the alternates. Some courts will make it clear who are the alternates at the very beginning, but other courts, they might just pick, you know, maybe 14 jurors, and then at the end of the trial, then they will pick the alternates, and then those are sent home. The remaining 12 go into the jury room and deliberate, decide the verdict. When picking a jury, you do want to be wary of those anxious jurors, which at the end of the voir dire scene, there's one juror that is challenged, and so is kicked off the prospective jury, and he reacts, he kind of jumps forward, makes a dramatic scene, now, I've never seen that in court, but I have seen some prospective jurors that do want to be on, on the jury. So you always have to be wary of them because maybe they're going to vote for you, maybe they're going to vote for the other side. It's not always clear, but it is clear that they're probably not unbiased. They're not impartial, already made up their mind. So you have to be careful with those type of prospective jurors. 
If you're enjoying today's episode, please subscribe. Give us five stars and a review. That would be really helpful to us. Please go to the website, four is in the number four, legalenglish.com, fourlegalenglish.com. You can check out the show notes there. You could also read our blog articles and available courses. Our Elemental Legal English course is an online course. You can complete it at your own pace and is a great way to improve your legal English skills. So let's talk about the jury expert or the jury consultant. Uh, Gene Hackman in this movie is, is the jury consultant. And of course, he's got a very impressive setup. Down the street from the courthouse, he's got this office that was kind of made out of nothing with maybe it looks like a dozen or more people. And they have computers, they have whiteboards, everything set up. Looks, looks, very, looks very professional and very fancy. So there's cameras in the courtroom, unbeknownst to everybody else, of course, but they're hidden cameras. One is on one of the lawyer's glasses, and another is in the briefcase, which probably is all sorts of ethical violations as well as possibly criminal violations. But it allows the jury consultant's team to watch the, the prospective jurors and figure out from their mannerisms, their, their actions, are they a good juror or a bad juror, at least in their eyes. So it's kind of interesting. This movie was 2003. Now, that's almost 20 years ago. How does that compare to today, especially the technology-wise? So I think a lot of the technology and what happened in, that, in the jury selection scene was probably not possible in 2003 or you know, it would be very, very expensive and probably not, not worthwhile. Today, it would be much easier to kind of replicate that. And you probably wouldn't need the team of a dozen people to do it. Today, to have hidden cameras in the courtroom would be much, much easier than it was 20 years ago. There's much more data available. We have a whole industry we call big data. There's so much available on social media. Uh, a lot of the data that looks like that Gene Hackman's crew was looking at might have been illegal or very difficult to access or very expensive to access. But there's a lot of information now that is publicly available or you know some that you might have to pay for. But there's much more data available today than there was then. So if we think about how Gene Hackman's crew worked, they collected data, they had access to certain databases. They also did surveillance where they physically had someone follow the prospective jurors so that they would get some information, which of course is probably illegal. And they had behavioral analysis or behavioral experts that would watch the prospective jurors, watch how they answer questions. You know, Do they fully answer? Do they dodge the, the question? Are they comfortable talking? Are they hiding something? Are they honest? And certainly those experts are very impressive, especially if they are, are good, then they can tell a lot by how people answer certain questions when they see them in action. They can provide some helpful guidance when picking a jury. I've never used jury consultants when I, when I picked a jury, but I always thought it would be great to have some kind of behavioral expert or jury expert that could help pick a jury. I think most of the time when I picked a jury, the jury liked me. I was never confident that I would pick a great jury for me or for my case, that sort of thing, because you don't get much feedback. You pick the jury, you can ask lots of questions, but then at the end of the trial, you get one answer, you know, guilty or not guilty or liable or not liable. And so it's difficult to know what did you do right, what, did, what could you do better. So I always thought having a behavioral analyst would be very useful when picking a jury, someone that could help, someone who had expertise in this field and would know what to look for and what to avoid. Now, most of the time, when we have talking about jury consultants, after the jury is selected, then their job is probably done. 
in this movie, of course, they continue. They do a lot of surveillance and a lot more than surveillance, which, of course, is illegal, unethical. But most of the time, jury consultants don't really cross that line. At least I hope not. But they help pick a fair and impartial jury or a, a jury that is more favorable to your arguments, to your client's arguments. Now, another thing that jury consultants might do is to have mock juries. So the counsel for one of the sides could put on a trial in front of a, a mock jury, and then that jury will give feedback. What did they like? What didn't they like? What worked? What didn't work? And so that would be very useful once the trial begins, taking that into account. Recently in the United States, there was kind of a famous trial in Wisconsin against Kyle Rittenhouse. It was a criminal trial. Before the trial began, there was an idea or a plan to use jury consultants and behavioral analysis to help select the jury. But before the trial began, the lead defense attorney changed his mind or, or decided not to go that way. They did not take advantage of that in the jury selection. And the jury selection in that case was, was very quick. But one thing that they did do in that case was that they did have mock jury trials be, before the real trial began. They tried it a couple of different ways. In the real case, the defendant testified. And one of the reasons is that when they did the, the mock jury trials, they tried it with the defendant testifying and tried it without. And the mock jury liked it when he testified. So that kind of convinced them we need to hear from the defendant. In most criminal cases, the defendant does not testify. It's, it's pretty rare, not unheard of, but pretty rare. But of course, most of the time, I think the defendant does have a criminal history, which will be released to the jury if he does testify. So that is kind of a, a big factor, whereas Kyle Rittenhouse didn't have any criminal history. I don't have any numbers, but I think in those types of cases, the defendant is much more likely to testify if they have no criminal history at all. And another noteworthy case, uh, this is maybe two or three years ago, but Roger Stone, who was a friend or confidant of President Trump, was tried and convicted. It later turned out that the four-person presiding juror in that jury had tweets about Roger Stone, about the defendant. Defense team did not know that at the time. That was one reason for appeal. Once a jury makes a decision, it's very difficult to, to overturn it. Before the voir dire, the defense team did not look at social media. They didn't consider it or they didn't follow through with it. Unlike those sophisticated databases that might be impossible to access or maybe very expensive to access or difficult to access, social media is pretty easy to access. So even if they had a small team, they don't even have to be experts. But with the names, they could have kind of done a rudimentary search on Twitter or Facebook, Instagram and found out something about some of the prospective jurors, including this juror who became the presiding juror, the lead juror in that case. So right now, I think it's still unusual or uncommon for the attorneys to kind of check social media of prospective jurors, but I believe that's changing very, very quickly. And I think in a few years, it might be that if an attorney that doesn't check social media might be doing something wrong, you know, failing their professional responsibility, especially things that are publicly available, you know, not hidden, anything like that. So it'll be interesting to see how that, that works out in the future. Jury consultants that do the behavioral analysis as well as the data research into social media and other data points is probably a very, very important field that's going to be growing over the next uh, several years. Another scene that I noticed was when the jury was arriving at the courthouse. They came in by bus. 
as they were leaving the bus, they were walking past the press, and even photographers were seemed to be taking their photos. And just recently, like I said, this Rittenhouse trial in Wisconsin, the jurors apparently left the courthouse in a bus and then were driven to you know secure location, a secret location, where then they got into their own cars and, and drove home. The jury in that case was not sequestered. They didn't live at a hotel or anything like that. But a reporter from MSNBC allegedly was following that bus, trying to see where, where the bus went and maybe trying to follow the jurors after they went home. And that news agency was actually kicked out of the courtroom because of it. And also the Rittenhouse case, like a lot of cases, if they are televised, you cannot see the jury. So if you are in the courtroom, of course, you can see the jury. They're, they're right there. If the trial is televised, the cameras don't show the jury. Another interesting issue in this case, we don't have really time to, to get into it too deeply, but just to, to bring up the professional responsibility or the, the ethics issue for the lawyers that were involved. So in the movie, the lawyers, both sides get anonymous note, almost like a ransom letter saying the jury is for sale, get your money ready, get ready to pay. Neither counsel notify anybody, they don't tell the judge, they don't notify the, the police or anything like that. Both sides are reluctant to pay, but both kind of play along. Even the plaintiff's attorney, Dustin Hoffman, plays along. It looks like he tries to get the money ready, but then at the last minute, he decides not to pay. But he doesn't report it. You know, he doesn't report it to anybody. And then even after the trial, he sees the juror, John Cusack, and his accomplice, Rachel Weiss, and he just kind of smiles at them, gives them a knowing nod, kind of complicit in the act. So that could be all sorts of professional responsibility issues for the lawyers that are involved. You know, that certainly should not be acceptable behavior buying a jury. Other than that, I thought Dustin Hoffman played a very good lawyer, a, you know, kind of a, a Southern lawyer, very believable. They point out, uh, if it's not apparent already, but his clothing, you know, wasn't as fancy as the defense attorney's clothing, more of a, a Southern seersucker suit, you know, a little bit off color but probably more comfortable in the warm weather. When I practiced in Florida, I knew some attorneys that, that were kind of like that, especially one in particular who was very, very skilled, excellent uh, litigator, excellent trial attorney, but was that kind of Southern lawyer, just kind of very relaxed, kind of played humble, but was very shrewd and a very good litigator. What goes on in the jury room is always kind of a black box. We never really know what is going on in there. Sometimes the jurors later will talk to the press or talk to the lawyers involved. So sometimes you, you can get some insights what's going on there. But as a lawyer, it's always interesting to, even in the movie, to get behind that jury room door and see what is going on in that jury room. And of course, uh, another great movie for that is 12 Angry Men. I'm sure we'll cover that in a future movie where the, almost the entire movie is the jury deliberations. You know, they, they arrive into the room after the trial ends and how the, the 12 angry men negotiate and come up with a verdict. But one of the things that's interesting today is the smartphone. So unless the jury is not allowed use of their smartphone, imagine all the information that's available in your smartphone. Now, in this movie and in other movies 2003 or earlier, it was somewhat easy to kind of isolate the jury so that they wouldn't hear about the trial that was going on. And certainly one, if it wasn't very, very noteworthy, they probably wouldn't know too much about it. 
But nowadays, with a cell phone, you don't need to ask a friend to to watch the news or to look up the newspaper or or go to the library and do some research. Imagine if you're put on a jury and you go into the jury room, or you're, or even if you're on the lunch break, imagine what you can Google and find out, or go to social media and find out. You might be able to to find the defendant or the victim or the plaintiff on Facebook or Twitter, Instagram, something like that. You'd probably get some more information on Google about them. So there's a lot of data, a lot of information that is very freely available. It might be difficult, if not impossible, to entirely cut the jury off from that. So of course, the judge will order the jury, don't do those things. And possibly they could order the jury not to have their, their smartphones in the jury room, or maybe certainly not during deliberations, but the judge isn't going to be able to keep them from their smartphones for the whole trial, especially when it's several days. So they're going to have access to that information if they choose to access the information. So overall, I think this is a really good movie. I don't think it's an excellent movie, but I think really good. A lot of the jury consulting part of it, I think, wasn't real. Certainly not the the active surveillance and intimidation. Those things hopefully is not real. The other parts of it are probably more likely and easier to do uh, in 2021 than they could do in 2003. Certainly there's a lot of data available on social media and, and other platforms, other databases, and with experts that can use that data or behavioral analysis that can look at the person and determine if they're predisposed to voting you know, for the plaintiff or for the defendant, that can be very valuable when selecting a jury. I think having a different antagonist might be more effective and believable. There weren't a lot of great courtroom scenes in the movie, but like I said, I really liked the voir dire in the beginning. And there's lots of interesting things in there. In the past, I've used that scene in some of my classes when talking about voir dire and and selecting a jury and how a jury operates. It was a great cast. There's lots of stars and supporting actors. It was a good thriller. Keeps you watching and wondering who will end up on top. And the twists and the turns were, were pretty good. So what do you think? Have you seen this movie? If not, why don't you give it a watch? Comment, let us know how you like this movie. If you're interested in in juries and kind of figuring out how juries work, it is an interesting movie to watch. Hopefully real juries never operate this way. We'll start to have a list of movies on our website for LegalEnglish.com slash movies. So this is the first one. So we'll put this up in the next couple of days or so. And then as we review more and more movies, we'll keep adding to the list. So in today's episode, we talked about voir dire and jury selection and some other trial topics. Do you have any questions about anything that we discussed today? Are there any legal terms that we use in today's episode that I didn't explain completely? Leave a comment in the show notes and we will respond. It'd be really great if you could subscribe, give us five stars, and a great review. Check out our blog articles and our available courses on our website. Four is in the number four, LegalEnglish, no spaces or dashes, dot com. Four, LegalEnglish, dot com. You can comment on the show notes. This is a great way to practice and improve your legal English skills. Four Legal English Podcast is adjourned. Don't miss the next docket call.